What would you do with your life if you knew you couldn't fail? If you had all the money, all the time, all the knowledge, all the resources that you needed, what would you do with your life if you simply knew that anything was possible for you? My name is Christina Carlson, founder of global Swedish design and inspiration brand Dream Life and author of the book Your Dream Life Starts Here. And I love exploring these sorts of questions to inspire people like you to chase your own dream life, whatever that means for you. Many years ago, I wrote down a dream on paper that would one day bring Swedish design to the world and create beautiful, inspiring and meaningful products that would bring sparks of joy into the everyday lives of millions. Now that I have achieved that dream, I want to leverage everything I've learned to help you dream big and to create a global movement to inspire 101 million people to transform their lives and transform the world in return. Each episode will dive deep into the power of dreaming and share real insights and practical ideas that you can use immediately to build a dream life of your own, whatever that means for you. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode. This week's guest is, of course, another inspiring one. And this episode is full of all things health and wellness and leadership that you can implement in your own life. What makes a great leader today and into the future is very different from what made great leaders in the past. The global pandemic has created dramatic changes to the way leaders need to think about how they lead and the vital role of well-being in this. Leaders need to walk the talk. Leaders need to put their own mask on first before they can focus on helping their team members. So today's guest, Hayden Fricker, began his adult life as a professional tennis player. Unlike the glamour scene at the top of professional tennis, Hayden was grinding it out on the satellite circuit. After a few years, he realized that he was not going to make it to the top. He realized that his own inability to cope with the anxiety, stress and pressure of high-level competitive tennis and life on tour was the key problem. Nobody had ever talked to him about these elements. He became interested in sports psychology and decided that that was his passion. While this was happening in his life, sadly, he was also dealing with significant family trauma. His younger brother had a mental breakdown and was later diagnosed with schizophrenia. His older brother had an intellectual disability and suffered from anxiety and depression. And on top of all that, his parents went through an emotional divorce. Hayden wanted to help and didn't know how. He wanted to learn about psychology of human behavior to help understand what was happening in his immediate family. That was over 30 years ago. Hayden then went to university and became a sports psychologist who worked in areas of sports psychology, drug and alcohol counseling and mental illness for over five years with the aim of building up his own practice as a sports psychologist. Hayden's passion for psychology was mostly in the area of positive psychology and he began a master's degree in organizational psychology. He has been working in that area ever since. And he has just come out with a great book called Leaders Do Have Your SHIT Together. And it's about how leaders need to take care of themselves first in order to take care of their team members. This is such a full, inspiring episode. So let's get right into it. Hi, Hayden, and welcome to my podcast. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm equally excited, Christina. Mm, that's so good to hear. Before we get started, there is one question that I ask every guest that I have on, and that is, did you have a dream as a child, something you wanted to become or do or have? I definitely did. My dream was about being a professional tennis player. That was my sole focus for many years. Uh, in fact, to the point where my mother uh, at school said to me, you need to get your HSC or year 12 as what was then. And I said, what do I need that for? I'm going to be a superstar tennis player. Uh, and of course, I ended up getting my HSC, although only just, just passed it because I didn't really give it much attention. Yes, but my dream was to become a tennis player. 
I'd love to hear a little bit more um, how that actually played out because you are not a tennis player today, but maybe you're retired. <laughs> but we have listeners from all over the world, so they might not know of you yet. So maybe just want to give us a little bit of an overview of your journey um, so people can get to know you a little bit better. Lovely. Well, I might as well continue that story about my early dream. I did end up after school, I got a full tennis scholarship to a college in America in Tennessee to play tennis. And so I went to the US and played tennis on a tennis scholarship. And that was great for about a year. And then I actually turned professional and played the world satellite circuit, the lowest level of professional tennis for about three years. And I continued to strive to become a professional tennis player. But it was dawning on me that I was not going to make it as I, I didn't win often enough. What I realised about myself through that journey, though, following that dream was that I was a very good tennis player, but I did not know how to cope with anxiety and pressure and stress. No one back then in the 1980s had sort of taught me how to do that. It was thought back then that you either had the mental strengths to be very good or not. And anyway, I heard about this concept called sports psychology, and I then decided that's what I want to do. So I left the professional tennis circuit, went to university, became a sports psychologist, for about five years, I juggled being a sports psychologist, working with tennis players and uh, swimmers and different athletes, but there wasn't quite enough work and money in sports psychology back then. And so I also do drug and alcohol counselling and working with people with mental illness, particularly schizophrenia, depression and anxiety. I juggled those things for about five years and then realised I don't really like drug and alcohol counselling because it's helping people that are just sort of uh, surviving. I love the positive psychology side of sports psychology, but I need to do something that makes a better living than this. Anyway, long story short, I decided that organisational psychology was my fit. So I went back to university, did a master's degree in organisational psychology at Monash University. And I've been doing that now for about 25 years as an organisational psychologist, both in internal roles, uh, internal human resources or organisational development roles or business roles or consulting psychology roles right back to the 1990s. And then the last part of my story is then I set up a company called Steeple 13 years ago in 2009 that I've been running for 13 years and we've got a team of roughly 50 people across Australia, New Zealand and the US all focused on driving positive behaviour changes within organisations. I love that and I obviously can't wait to talk about that. I also know that you have a bit of a tough personal story as well. It'd be great to just hear a little bit on that as well with your brother, etc. Absolutely. So at the time that I was trying to make it on the professional tennis circuit, there were various traumatic events that were happening in my life as well. So my parents were getting divorced when I was 18 and 19. And unfortunately, it was at that stage, my younger brother, two years younger, who was on the tennis circuit with me at the age of 17. He was a very good tennis player. And unfortunately, he was not coping well with the pressures of elite level tennis. And he had a, what they called at the time a mental breakdown at the age of 17. And a year later, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. He tried to uh, continue to make it on the tennis circuit, but gradually just his concentration, his mind wouldn't allow him to do that. And so he lost his way and was in and out of psychiatric hospitals. And sadly, to the point of, uh, that he, he ended up trying to take his own life when he was 24. And he didn't take his life, but in the process, uh, he lost both legs. And so at that point in his life, he had both lost his mind and lost his legs he was in hospital for nearly a year just recovering from that. But amazingly, he did manage to come back and he actually won the Australian Open Wheelchair Doubles title, which is incredible that he was able to do that. But sadly, over the next many years, his, his life was very sad and became sadder. And uh, two months ago, he passed away at the age of only 53. In the end, it was a physical health that took his life, but it was the, the mental health issues that led to his physical health issues. So I guess from a personal perspective, I'm, I'm not only passionate about psychology from an organisational psychology perspective, I'm very passionate about it and personally affected by mental illness and mental health as well. Yeah, gosh, so sorry to hear that. And the challenges that we have to deal with while we're trying to to work and be well for ourselves and for others. So I love to actually 
here why you actually decide to write the book, which is Leaders. Do you have your S-H-I-T together? And uh, the subtitle is How Leaders Need to Take Care of Themselves First in Order to Take Care for Their Team Members. So first, tell me why you decided to write this book. I've been working in sort of organisational psychology for many years now and probably over the last 10 years have had an increasing focus on the overlap between wellbeing and leadership. Done a lot of work along leadership and a lot of work around wellbeing. And it even goes right back to the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, when I set up my business. And there was a lot of stress and bullying harassment claims as a result of after the GFC managers being told to do more with less driving performance and productivity. And as a result, people felt more stressed. And wellbeing sort of started to emerge as something that was important for organisations, but it was it was lip service to wellbeing. So you'd see 10,000 steps programs and fruit bowls and massages and things that were around the edges but weren't dealing with the root cause of the problem, which was managers and the pressure and stress that managers wanted themselves and that they were putting others. So we started doing some work around this a number of years ago around the concept of how do leaders drive both performance and well-being? And it's not one or the other, it's both. You need to be able to drive performance and well-being at the same time. So I've been sort of working around this area for a while now. And then you get to the point where a lot of leaders know and companies know they should drive a culture of well-being. And of course, since COVID, it's even more important. More people are aware that well-being is important to long-term business success now. But then the question becomes, how do leaders do this? They can't just set up a wellbeing manager somewhere else to run this. They have to lead by walking the talk. We know that 70% of culture comes from daily habits and behaviours of leaders. And so if leaders want to create a culture of wellbeing, they have to try to walk the talk themselves. And so I've been coaching and working with leaders for certainly the last five or six years with that particular focus. How do leaders change themselves in order to take care of others. And we know that's hard. So I guess it's been a passion of mine for some time. And that's why I thought I need to write a book on this to make sure that more people can hear this story of how important it is to take care of your own well-being before helping others. Absolutely. And I love the book. But I mean, they're obviously very passionate about well-being and health and everything around that. And I'm extra excited because the cover is so nicely designed. Because that's important for someone who's a visual person and um, and that's not always the case. So well done for doing that. But before diving into the book, I would love for you to share with our listeners your experience with kind of walking the talk and in particular the um, little experiment you had with going alcohol and sugar-free. Yes, thank you. That, that was a fascinating experience and I know that you've gone without uh, alcohol for three years and I did it for two. It started as a project. I was 49 years old uh, six years ago and I thought, what am I going to do for my 50th birthday? Am I going to give myself a shiny red Porsche or am I going to have a midlife crisis? What am I going to do? And I thought about this and I thought, and I'd read some stuff. Uh, that showed that however fit and healthy you are at the age of 50, usually it lasts, you know, the rest of your life. I thought, okay, I'm going to give myself a six-pack for my 50th birthday party. And I'd always been fit and healthy. It's been something that's important to my life, but I probably never had a six-pack. I'd probably eaten not that well. Anyway, so I decided what is the simplest, smallest change I can make to the way I eat and drink that actually will have the biggest difference to my life in a 12-month period. I did some research and and found that if I just gave up added sugar, that alone would be the only change I would need to make. And then, of course, as I thought about that, I thought, well, there's sugar in alcohol. And so I need to give up alcohol for a year as well. So I gave up added sugar for a year. Now, I should say it was two years in the end because after my 50th birthday where I did drink, I decided to go again for another year. So I was two years with a drink in the middle. And it was a fascinating experiment because what I noticed was when I didn't have sugar, like if I said, I'm not going to have that chocolate or I'm not going to have that cake, no one really cared because it didn't affect them. And so that was kind of relatively easy to give up sugar. 
However, when I said I'm not having a drink, when I'm not having alcohol, that was when I got this real um, different response that in Australia, the social norms around alcohol are so strong that people look at you in a weird way and it's kind of like you're rejecting them if you're saying no to having a drink with them. So that was a fascinating experience of understanding social norms around alcohol and then knowing the tools and techniques how to navigate the social circumstances around alcohol and the mental strengths needed to overcome the challenging social norms. That was a really interesting experience. Mm, so interesting because I did find very similar. I didn't go sugar-free, but actually I found that when I quit alcohol, I craved more sugar. So I was very much aware of that and tried not to go crazy on that. But I had similar responses and anything from people getting think I was the most stupid person in the world <laughs> to people thinking I'm either pregnant, sick or alcoholic. Like it was like people were just asking and it's, you know, uh, it's interesting because when people do drink, I don't ask why they drink, but people felt like they could ask me why don't I drink. And completely understandable because it's so normalized now. But it was interesting because um, I do these kind of challenges all the time. So if anyone comes to my house and they don't drink, they would feel fine with that. But a friend of mine actually came here with a bottle of white and she was doing Oksoba, which is alcohol-free October for anyone who don't know. And um, she brewed peppermint tea that looked exactly exactly like a Chardonnay or a white wine. So she bought it and she told me what she was drinking. It was fascinating. But she said that there was a group of friends that she didn't tell at the lunch before. And she just felt more comfortable, I guess, with uh, and not having to go into those discussions, especially if it's a group that drink all the time. But it was just so interesting that you want to be part of it and not having this discussion. And it's quite crazy considering that it's a drug and it's, it's something that's not good for us. And it's been so normalized. Yes, and just building on what you've just said there, I mean, in fact, that's one of the bits of advice I gave my children as they were going through their teenage years. There's a lot of social pressure, even from the age of 13, 14, 15, before they all start drinking at 16 or 17 or 18. And so in the early stages, my kids didn't want to drink, but they didn't want to feel ostracised socially. So the advice was, you know, get a, a can of whatever it is, vodka and something or other, and pour it down the sink and go and fill it up with water and then hold it there and drink it slowly throughout the day, uh, in the night, so you look like you're drinking, but you're not. So that overcomes the need to try to explain why you're different from everyone else. So, you know, that's that strategy and plan around social norms. And this probably broadly goes to, Christina, the definition that I have of well-being is not just physical well-being, it's physical, it is psychological, emotional and social well-being. And alcohol enhances your social well-being or can, depending on who your norm group is, but obviously uh, reduces your physical well-being. So there's a there's a real playoff between social, physical, emotional and psychological well-being. And, and it's important for us to be aware that all of those needs are actually important. Yeah, absolutely. The thing that I found, though, was after a year, so the first year was challenging because you had, you know, New Year's, you had, um, you know, birthdays, special celebrations that, you know, you were used to to drink after a while people just got used to it so three and a half years was, was obviously quite a long time and in the end they they just no she doesn't drink so it was no more questioning like that so I think it's just the first year for anyone who's thinking of doing something like that uh, and I do drink I'm back drinking, but I have a big birthday coming up next year and I'm thinking I'm not going to get a big, shiny red port. <laughs> um, I took a note here. Maybe I need a six-pack as well. But I'm uh, thinking that for my year next year, I actually want to be the fittest I've ever been. It's it's a dream of mine to every birthday become stronger, fitter, healthier. So uh, it's an interesting... I'd love to talk to you about that over time, Christina, because that effectively, even though I joke about a six-pack, that effectively was what I... What I was trying to do is said, I want to be the fittest I can be at the age of 50 that I've ever been. And I thought to myself, I've always been physically active, but I've used that as an excuse to eat rubbish sometimes. Yeah. So I said, why would I do that? Look after my physical health, but not eat the right kind of nutrition and food. So for me, that was it. And it, it did get me into the best shape I've ever been. And I did have a six pack and I felt fantastic. Yeah. So it was a great gift to myself. And I'd love to uh, follow your journey on that. 
Yeah, thank you. And you know, it's um, for me, it actually started with it going alcohol free was actually started with sleep. So both food, eating late and alcohol really affects my sleep. And uh, when you working a lot and you have children and you have a really full life. And I also traveled a lot during these uh, years. And I just felt like I was just exhausted all the time. And so that was really what got me started on this journey. And another thing that really got me every single time, because I'm so passionate about health and well-being, and I read a lot about it, I just felt, and I, you know, I buy everything organic and, you know, I, I uh, you know, with the kids, I've tried to not give them any sugar for many, many years all that kind of stuff and then I just felt like there was such a letdown when I just then had wine because I knew how that was affecting my body because it's basically poison that the body just wanted to reject so then you kind of undid so many of the good things that I did and that's really what got me thinking about doing one year alcohol free just to try it and then I didn't when when my friends they all said let's have a big party (laughs) and uh, make up for the year when you start drinking but when it came one year came around I was like no I'm just going to continue and it wasn't until three and a half years when I unpacked a lot of great wine into the house we moved into and I thought actually I'm going to drink these and uh, that's how I started again. I would say if any of your listeners are thinking about trying to not drink alcohol for a while i would say the hardest period is this there's sort of three phases the first month is definitely the hardest physically and psychologically because you actually still have some cravings if you and i never drank a lot anyway but i would drink two or three times a week and particularly on the weekends right you get to friday and you want to drink at you know five o'clock friday evening or something on a saturday so you have this craving at like four o'clock on a Friday. Oh, that's good. I'm going to have a beer in a minute. And you go, oh, no, I'm not. There's a, a month or so I found that it, the, the craving was still there, but then that went. And then it's probably about three months because it takes a while to cycle through all your friends where you say, no, I'm not drinking. But once you've done that for about three months, it's kind of everyone accepts that it's okay. So I don't even think it takes a year. It's about a month physically to get over your addiction. And then it's about three months socially. Uh, and then it's kind of easy after that. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I think for me it was because I live two summers. I have a summer in Australia and summer in Sweden and they were the they were the hardest ones because that's when often you tend to drink more, me anyway. So yeah, good advice there. Let's talk about physical well-being. Can you please share some of the important factors when it comes to our physical health and well-being? I think of physical health and well-being as four major components. You talked about one of them before, sleep. Sleep is important for physical and mental, but it's often not spoken about enough. It's got highly restorative factors to it physically and mentally. And yet there's something like two to two and a half million Australians at any one time that suffer from insomnia, which is defined as three weeks in a row of either not getting to sleep uh, when you want to, waking up in the middle of the night or waking up way too early in the morning and not getting back to sleep. So there's two over 2 million Australians right now suffering from insomnia. So sleep is such an important factor. The next factor is obviously food and then diet. They go together. So the, the need to make sure that you are taking care of what you eat, which is what we've been talking about, and what you drink. I'm not a dietitian and I don't ever claim to be a dietitian and, and get into the science of it all. I'm more interested in what are the habits of what you do every day in terms of what you put in your mouth and are you mostly not being perfect because it's got to fit in with your life? Is it mostly giving you nutrients and energy that you need physically to cope with the activity that you're doing? If you're going to the gym and doing weights, do you get enough protein? And you know, So it's just much being aware of, of, of what goes in your mouth every single day and building some great habits around that. And, of course, exercise. Now, I'm, I'm a big one and I've always exercised and I believe you should do something every day. If you do something three days a week, then you are, oh, what am I doing the other days? It's easier to build a habit that you do daily. It's just part of your daily rhythm and routine. To make it last for your lifetime, I also believe variety is important and enjoyment's important. So building a habit and a pack practice around what types of exercise do I do and what do I do that I get enjoyment from and can keep doing the next day. Whatever I do today, I need to be able to do something again tomorrow rather than smashing yourself on a marathon or a gym session and then being sore for the next week and not being able to do anything. So it's about slowly building up 
from wherever you're at. And, and it could even be little things. It doesn't need to be running marathons. It can be small things, but we need to move and do something for a minimum of 30 minutes uh, and maybe even 45 minutes or further, depending on what's in your life. So certainly making that a habit. And I also believe that it probably should be in the morning. Um, to get up and do something in the morning is a good habit to build. Certainly, if you're going to do it in the evening, you should do exercise uh, ideally at least two or ideally three hours before bedtime because otherwise it interrupts your sleep. So ideally either morning or not, no later than two or three hours at night time. So we've got food, diet, exercise, sleep. And as well as that, it's really important to focus on water and hydration and making sure that you drink plenty of water and keep hydrated uh, to take care of your physical well-being. A lot of people don't drink enough water and get dehydrated in what they do. So that's another aspect of physical health that's uh, particularly important. You could say there's one more thing that sort of fits across both, which is kind of meditation, uh, rest, recovery. It fits within both physical and mental health side of things, which is similar to sleep. It's good for both physical, uh, the mind and the body as well. I think the water is kind of, it made massive difference to me if I don't drink enough water in terms of, I feel like that's more important than having a caffeine drink in terms of pick me up. If I have lots of water, I don't feel like I need that the same way. So mm-hmm. so that's a good one. Mm-hmm. And also what you said about doing something daily, it works. So today, I just, as the time of recording this, I just finished my 100th run. So I've been running every day for 100 days, just short distances between a little bit longer ones, just to kind of not overdoing it. And it's just been so much easier to do something daily. It would really works for me because otherwise I'm really good at negotiating with myself, thinking I'm too busy today, I'll do it tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and be like, oh, just, you know, it's raining, it's cold, whatever it might be, something comes up. But because I'm doing it daily, I don't want to break the streak. It was more about when do I need to do it? And often if you do it first thing in the morning, there is no, no interruption. So that worked really well for me. I find that I think the night before I'm going to bed, so as I'm doing my nightly routine to get ready for bed, I think what am I doing tomorrow and when am I doing it? And I set my alarm based upon that at night. So when I get up, it's already planned. I don't get up in the morning and think when am I going to do it? It's the the plan the day before. If I had a routine where I did the same every day, then that would be easier, but I like to mix it up. So the decision is made as I'm getting ready for bed the night before. Yeah. And what kind of exercise do you do? So do you have like a little menu of things that you like to do or do you? um... Yeah. So it does depend on my uh, physical capacity. Uh, Sometimes I have had a tendency to overdo it and get some injuries, but I always keep going and you work around anything that might be an injury. So for example, this morning I went for a swim. So I will mix it around between a swim, a run, I say run slash jog. It's not a fast run anymore, but I will do between four and six kilometres a couple of times a week. So it'll be that. I will do weights. I think it's important that we all build strength and upper body strength and don't just work our legs or whatever. So I will do weights, including working on my course. I've got a a lucky to have a a gym outside, so I can just go and do that whenever I want. And finally, I don't know what we call it, uh, yoga, stretching, whatever. I find that as I'm getting older, I am not as flexible as I need to be. So I'm trying to include a couple of sessions a week of my own yoga slash stretching Particularly, you get tight in the hips uh, as you get older, hips and lower back. So ensuring I'm doing at least 20 minutes of sort of that uh, a few times a week. So I mix it around between all of those. And bike riding, I rode, I worked in the city yesterday. So instead of catching the train, I rode into the into work in the city, which is a 20-kilometre ride each way. So it's a bike ride. And when my body's holding up and I'm okay and I've got time, I love to still play tennis. Mm, that's so inspiring. Thanks for sharing that. Let's talk about mental health and well-being. What are the important factors there? You already mentioned, um, you know, rest, meditation and sleep. Are there some other factors to our mental health being? Definitely. I mean, I guess this has been the area that I've focused on mostly for the last 30 years or so. And in my book, there's lots of tools and tactics uh, that you can use. And probably the most important, if I just, there's, there's a whole lot of things, but the most important thing that anyone can do for their mental health is understand the connection between their emotions and their thoughts. 
Mm. My background from 30 years ago is cognitive behavioural psychology and cognitive psychology in very basic terms is all about saying the way we feel, that is our emotions like sadness, happiness, um, anger, frustration, the way we feel is not caused by situations and events that happen around us but by our thoughts about those events. And so if we want to feel happier, we have to really listen to and understand what our thoughts are, what are our patterns of thinking, and we have to seek to change our thinking, any thoughts that are not helping us feel good. We have to change those unhelpful thoughts and replace them with healthier, more helpful thoughts. Often what people try to do is they try to change the situation and try to change whatever problem or challenge they've got in life. We're all going to have problems and challenges. It's how we respond to those that's most important. And firstly, how we think about that is the starting point for the change in, in behaviour. So to me, if there was one thing I would do mentally is start to understand the connection between your thoughts and how you're feeling. And then it's a lifelong journey. There's no magic wand to wave. Sometimes as a psychologist, I wish I had a magic wand to wave to make everyone feel better, but I don't. But the most powerful thing is is managing your thoughts. There is a there is a new wave of cognitive psychology called ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, which has a slightly different sort of variation on what I've just said. That acceptance and commitment therapy sort of says instead of changing your thinking, once you've become aware of your thoughts and aware of the thoughts that are not helpful to you, learn to accept those thoughts, accept yourself with kindness and compassion and accept that we're all human and we're not perfect and don't berate yourself for having unhelpful thoughts and just almost uh, find ways of what's called diffusing those thoughts and letting the thoughts go and not hanging on to unhelpful negative thoughts. Uh, even little strategies visually like, you know, pretending there's a bad thought that's on a leaf and it's floating away down a river or my favourite one from ACT is if you can imagine that you're gardening on a Sunday, on a sunny sun, Sunday afternoon for four hours and you've got a radio on um, and you're listening to songs, you know, your favourite song comes on, up on and you mentally turn the volume up of that song and you sing along and then it finishes and then there's talk back and you sort of mentally turn, turn the volume down. That analogy is a great one for thoughts. We have thoughts going all the time what we need to do is learn to turn up the volume of the good thoughts and turn down the volume of the unhelpful thoughts. Unfortunately, sometimes we do the opposite. We actually turn up the volume of the negative ones. So we have to consciously be able to kind of let go of the, the less helpful ones and turn the volume of the positive thoughts up. So anyway, there's some of my thoughts around what you can do to manage your mental health. Love that. Thank you for sharing those tips. Really, really helpful. I think most people have something that they want to change, but the hardest part is changing, as we know. <laughs> and I assume that people who are listening to this podcast has a growth mindset. But let's talk about the power of yet. And there's a really good quote by Sig Ziglar, you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. I share this all the time on this podcast. Uh, but I do think that, you know, that sentence and also uh, the power of using yet. So I'm not good at this yet. I'm not healthy yet, but there is potential. So let's talk a little bit about how we can reframe of eventually getting there. And this is not just for health and well-being, but I think with any goals that, or dreams that we may have that we haven't got to yet, which is then very natural, of course, not to know how to do it or know. So let's talk a little bit about that. The woman that really started the concept of the growth mindset uh, is somebody called Carol Dweck. And Carol Dweck did a huge amount of research into the concept of the growth mindset. And it, it first found its way into the education system in the US and then in Australia, and then it's made its way in the last 10 years into organisations and businesses. And it's this concept of the difference between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset, uh, which goes to the cognitive psychology I was talking about before. So someone with a fixed mindset is somebody who's quite black and white, quite perfectionistic, and kind of wants to be certain about everything. And that, unfortunately, has a view that, you know, intelligence is static. You know, like a child might say, I'm no good at maths. And if you can change your mindset to a growth mindset, which then adds the word yet, I'm no good at maths yet. 
which then implies, and you finish the sentence, which says, and with practice, I can become good at maths or anything I want to. So a growth mindset is not false in that it says I can be great at anything. It says I can learn if I put my mind to it. So it's a mindset of learning and development rather than uh, almost fatalistic. A fixed mindset is fatalistic. I'm just not good at that. Whereas a growth mindset is I can learn if I want to. So I think this absolutely goes to your thoughts. A lot of people need, they're not even aware of their thoughts. And so it's really important to for people to start to tune in and increase their awareness of their thoughts. And sometimes people might have a growth mindset about some things, but a fixed mindset about others as well. So it's not like you either have a growth or fixed mindset for everything. So it's important to examine your thoughts constantly and say, do I have a fixed mindset about this problem here? And then learn to actually change your thinking. And that adding the words yet is a lovely way of doing that. Mm, couldn't agree more. And I love when people come into my coaching program and say that they don't think that they can do a dream or they're not sure. And I just, I haven't seen a dream that's not possible yet, <laughs> but it's just really from their perspective. And I also think that we are so influenced by what other people think. And, and then we take on our peers or parents or teachers, their kind of fears and doubts on their own capability of doing things so it's really just about deciding what you want to do and then learn and then use that i'm not good at it yet but i can if i want to exactly and with our children as parents it's so important to start this early if you've had parents that are fixed mindset parents it's more likely that you'll have a fixed mindset so you have to overcome some of those uh, bad habits that no doubt you may have learned if you're an adult as a child and so the best thing you can do as a parent is model that with your children and then that'll have a positive effect on you as well. So I'm interested in what motivates you to keep healthy and to keep focusing on health and well-being. I read in your book that people often say that you are so self-disciplined and I often hear that myself but I always say hey I wasn't like the, the running is a certainly not my favorite thing I'm not a good runner in terms of I never really run as a as a child more than I had to and for me I just learned to be self-disciplined so I think everyone can do that so I love to hear what is your response when people say that you are so disciplined good question this question has kind of made me think a lot about this because I wonder this is easy for me why why do others struggle so hard so I've I have to, to answer that question, I have to go back to how did it start for me, right? So I think for me, as a young person, I love tennis and I love sport and, I, and, and doing that more and more to keep fit for tennis, I did a lot of other training. I ran a marathon, I did triathlons and, and I had that experience of that endorphin sort of rush and I just felt so good. It's almost like you're on a high when you really do something amazing. Now, I know a lot of people say I've never had that endorphin rush. I'd feel rubbish after running or whatever, but, but I certainly had that in my 20s and late teens and so that sort of, I think, started. But I would never say that I was a disciplined person as a youngster. I, I partied and, you know, all sorts of things, but I think I love the feeling of feeling fit and healthy but as I've then gotten older I've kind of felt the desire to keep that going you know I saw my father for example who put on weight he was a you know he was a successful barrister and actually a judge in the county court of Australia so you know successful from a, a career perspective but I saw my own father putting on weight and not being that healthy in later years. And I thought, geez, I don't want to do that. And I saw others, even professional tennis players, when they finished playing tennis, they would put on weight or sports people. I thought, I don't want to do that. I wanted to keep it going. And so I think what I've developed then as a result, there was some level of consciousness about saying, I want to build some habits that are built into my day that I do for the rest of my life. I don't know when that kind of dawned on me. It probably happened over time. And certainly for at least the last 15 years or so, I would have done some exercise every single day. You know, I'm not sure how it all starts, whether you start the same journey as me, but I channel a guy called BJ Fogg, who's written a great book called Tiny Habits. And so he talks about, you know, the tiny habits. And for me, it's what you do every day and the little tiny things. It's nothing big, which is similar to Zig Ziglar's quote of, you know, you've got to be got to start to be great. It's the starting. So a lot of people struggle with the starting. So start small, start tiny. And BJ Fogg would say, if you start small and you still can't do that, make it even smaller. 
make it even small, make it small enough, and he calls it laughably small, make it laughably small and make sure you can repeat it every day. And another little story that just adds to that is this guy called Simon Sinek, who's a great guy who's, who's uh, written a book called Start With Why and another other few great books. But he says, he gives you an example of cleaning your teeth. If I clean my teeth in the morning, uh, I'm not gonna have clean teeth. If I clean my teeth in the morning and at night, I'm still not gonna have clean teeth. Um, I need to clean my teeth in the morning and the night every day for my whole life that gives me clean teeth. And that's the same with discipline around and thinking around exercise. I've got to be able to do some exercise, not just today, but tomorrow and the next day and the next day, but make it small like brushing your teeth. And once you build that habit, I don't even think about it anymore. So once you build the tiny habits, it's just part of your life. Once you started, you just feel so good that I feel like I can't really start working before I've been outside. I just need need that. So it's hard to start something, but eventually it will take over you and you just do it automatically. It becomes becomes a habit and starting small. And I, I think I shared with you and I've shared this many times on the podcast, but sometimes doing something two minutes. And when I started running, I did like two minute running, one minute walk or something like that. And then I just gradually, because I have injured myself in the past going too hard, being kind of an all or nothing personality and I decided actually not to do it this time even though it's so tempting when you start and you just want to become better and it's interestingly both of the people that I have done this streak with overdid it because they um, went a little bit too excited and then had to stop so starting small has so many benefits not just by starting but also um, not to injure yourself the other point I might make that's important too Christina that might help listeners is you talked about automatic before before you get to something that's automatic all listeners everyone has their automatic habits of what they do every day we do so many things on an automatic pilot if you don't have a habit of exercising like you and I do every day then you'll have to go through there are four stages of learning the first stage is you just don't know you don't know the second stage is you know you don't know the third stage is you know you know and the fourth stage is you you just do it another way of saying the same thing is first of all you're unconsciously unconscious then you're consciously unconscious then you're consciously conscious and finally back to unconsciousness again on automatic pilot if you've got a habit like you and i have you don't think about it; it's automatic if you haven't got the habit you actually have to go through a process of learning and that process of knowing that you don't know is uncomfortable and you've got to go through that discomfort stage for a period until it becomes uh, automatic. So that's probably a key for learners to, to know. If you don't have a habit and you're changing, there's an un- a discomfort period that you have to go through. Mm, I certainly did that with running enough. I feel like I'm still in it. <laughs> Before we finish up, I have a couple of quick questions to ask you. Uh, you did mention that you have a night routine. I'd love to hear about your morning routine if you have one. We know that you exercise, but is there a particular morning routine that you follow? Yes and no. I do like variety, so it's not exactly the same. So it's kind of maybe a little different from yours, I think. But mine is to look the night before and decide what activity am I going to do? What have I got in my work schedule? My work schedule is quite inconsistent. I could be anywhere. And so I look at the when I do have to start work and then I work backwards from that and work out what I can fit in. And then I, I schedule that in and I set my alarm and I'm ready to go. So, for example, this morning I had a morning meeting at 7.30 in the city for a breakfast with someone, but I still got up and did a swim. for It was only a 15-minute swim uh, beforehand so that I didn't have much time. So I thought, oh, geez, I can, I, can I just fit a 15-minute swim in? Yesterday, I rode to work because I knew I was coming to the city and it was actually raining and I thought, no, I'm still going to do it. So as I left the house, it was raining and cold, but it was great to do. So it could be something like that or it could be a morning run, but every day I'll get up and do something that, and, and this morning is probably an example of the shortest possible time. If I've got 15 minutes, I'll still do something quickly. If I've got longer, I'll go up to an hour before before I have to start work. Great. Thank you for sharing that. 
both of us are avid readers and we share a book sometimes. So what's your favorite book? I know this is like naming your favorite child, which is impossible. So just one or two books that you have had an impact on you or that you loved. Look, you did tell me this a week ago and I spent some time uh, thinking about it and I could probably write a list of about 20 down and I'm going to share two. Look, there's, there's plenty of books that I love, but there's two books that are my favorites. One is by Sarah Edelman and it's called Change Your Thinking. And it is the most powerful book and easiest to read on cognitive psychology. And I've given it to a whole lot of people, uh, CEOs and others that I coach, because it's cognitive psychology, but it's not written in an academic way. It's written in a very easy to read way. It describes our thoughts, the thinking traps that we have, etc. And it actually goes into the five most common sort of uh, negative emotions from anger, frustration, depression, self-belief problems. And then it gives you specific examples of what kind of thoughts drive those kind of negative emotions. So that's the most powerful thing. It is a bit dry, but it's great. The second one is probably less dry and actually really fascinating. In the same vein, it's called uh, The Righteous Mind by a guy called Jonathan Haidt. I never know how to say that name. It's H-A-I-D-T, Jonathan Haidt, and it's called The Righteous Mind, and it's all about how some people can be very intelligent people, but they actually have totally opposing views of things like politics and uh, religion and how we've got this society now that has polar opposite views of right versus wrong. And he describes what's causing that is that what we actually do is we use the the emotional part of our brain, the uh, limbic system, to make an initial gut feel decision. And then what we do is we use our prefrontal cortex to actually go and look for any evidence and data that backs up that gut feel. And we think we're making rational decisions, but actually the emotional part of our brain has made the decision and the data we're seeking is only seeking to verify what our initial gut feel is. And so the power in this is to say, first of all, all of us recognise that we do that and learn to pause and breathe and stop and just take a moment before we make that initial gut feel decision. So anyway, quite a powerful concept and uh, I'd recommend anyone to read that book. Mm, I haven't read that book yet, so I'm definitely going to read it. This has been such an inspiring episode, so thank you for sharing. I just want to ask one more question. Well, actually two. One is uh, for any leader, and I think we're all leaders because we're all leaders of our own life, regardless if we work with other people or not, what kind of steps should people start with getting their SHIT together in terms of where to start? Like if people just feel like I'm so inspired, what should I start with? So to get your SHIT together, the starting point really is self-awareness. You really need to make sure you pause, reflect and find ways to reflect on on yourself. If you're not a reflective person, then slow down, find ways to to become more reflective and more self-aware of your strengths and weaknesses and do that in a very humble, open and vulnerable kind of way. Step two is to think about, okay, what do you want to change and why? Think deeply about the why. Really important to go, okay, if I'm going to stop drinking alcohol before you even begin that you go why would I do that you got to kind of really know your passion and why you want to do something and and you got to be motivated very highly to stick at something uh, so think about that and, and and then the third step is if you're going to do it then you've got to build some some knowledge and capability and skills to to change uh, so you've got to do some some learning about whatever you want to change behaviorally and you know measurement is important and, and holding yourself accountable writing a goal down or, or as you might call it a dream you've got to write your dream down write your goal down and commit it to paper and then finally tell someone else about it and get get some support around you of at least one person or more that can kind of hold you to account and, and support you on your journey yeah and I think that last point is so important and it seems so simple but every time I do like a little challenge something I want to change I used to drag all my friends uh, in, a, <laughs> in it and not everyone wanted to be in it so I did then decided to do a habit club which I launched maybe a couple of years ago and it's been so inspiring to see what people when they changed having that support but reporting back but also the support and the cheering on so this morning I was very grateful for my little habit club who's following my 100 days of running so it's really powerful to have some support 
Yeah, fantastic. Before we end this super inspiring conversation, I would love to ask you, knowing what you know now, what kind of advice would you give to your younger self? So say maybe, you know, your late teens. So a really tough and good question though. Probably around not taking things too seriously uh, whilst everything we're talking about is important and important to build good habits. You know, we've only got one life um, we have and we need to enjoy it along the way and be kind and compassionate to ourselves. And I think I probably tried to continue to, and I still have to work on this now, prove myself, uh, always wanting approval from others. So to learn to not always want to seek out to be perfect and to have the approval of others to actually kind of celebrate your own uniqueness and your own strengths in a kind and caring, compassionate way to yourself. Ironically, by doing that, you're actually probably going to be a better person and live a better life. Very wise words. Thank you so very much for this super inspiring conversation and for sharing your knowledge. And for anyone who is curious about your book, we'll obviously link to that and uh, highly recommend you read it. I think it's a book that every leader should have. So um, thank you for writing the book and thank you for sharing your knowledge here. And I also want to thank you for the uh, amazing support that you gave us when we were going through a really tough time um, at Kiki K. So I just wanted to thank you again. Uh, I don't know if I can ever thank you enough, but that meant a lot to us and the Kiki K family as that was obviously a very challenging time. So thank you for making a difference to the world. And I have no doubt that you'll continue and um, this book will become a bestseller. Thank you, Christine. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to talk to you on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. So, so inspiring and so much to implement in your own life. I can't wait to hear or you will start implementing in your life. Please share with me in the Dream Life podcast Facebook group. I will add a link to the show notes. I will, of course, also share a link to Hayden's book, which is a must read if you want to go deeper in the topics that we spoke about. And if you are ready to walk the talk as a leader when it comes to all things health and well-being. Health and wellness is a big passion of mine and it is of course a vital part of living your dream life. When we have more energy we are more likely to be able to take action on all the dreams that we have in our own life. In the new year we will have a health and wellness theme in the Dream Life Coaching Program and we got the amazing Dr. Lever Weaver in as a speaker. Just go to yourdreamlifestartshere.com if you want to join a group of like-minded people and to learn from Dr. Libby. I'm just so excited about my new program where everyone in there is focused on making 2023 their best year ever, me included. I just can't wait. And if you want to be part of it, please join us. I'll be back next week. Have a wonderful week. And of course, don't forget to dream big.